You are listening to the Just Powers podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists who provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all. Series three of the Just Powers podcast was recorded at Sublet Sound in Edmonton, Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study. Today, your readers are Dr. Sheena Wilson and Jesse Beyer. Today we will be reading Ara Wilson's The Infrastructure of Intimacy, published by Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society in the winter of 2016. Bringing together intimacy and infrastructure, this article explores the ways in which infrastructures are involved in social relations and, in many cases, shape the conditions for relational life. Ara Wilson is Associate Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. Wilson's research combines science and technology studies approaches with materialist theories in order to investigate ethnographically informed depictions of life under global capitalism. The Infrastructure of Intimacy by Ara Wilson Quote, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. End quote. Alexander Graham Bell. This essay brings together two different rubrics that are animating recent strands of critical analysis intimacy and infrastructure. Its point is as simple as calling attention to a telephone wire or these days to a cell phone tower. That infrastructures are involved in social relations and in many cases shape the conditions for relational life. Intimate relations involve places, the example in this essay is the public latrine, or conduits like the telephone or computer discussed below. But the infrastructure for intimacy reaches beyond the specific forms of the SMS or the WC. Tracing circuits of pipes and cables embeds intimate relations in unpredictable junctures of material and symbolic power. The emergence of intimacies as an analytical term in studies of gender, sexuality, kinship, or social relations is likely more familiar to readers of feminist and queer scholarship than is a new attention to infrastructure in critical scholarship and infrastructural turn occurring in a number of fields. Infrastructure's chief reference lie in transportation, so roads and ports, energy, as in hydroelectric dams, power plants, pipelines, communications, with telephone lines, cell phone towers, and water and waste, aqueducts, sewers, and treatment plants. These systems are not routinely associated with intimacy. This essay suggests that they should be. One reason for attention to infrastructure is empirical, Relationships take place in environments comprised of these material and immaterial functional or failing networks. Understanding how infrastructures enable or hinder intimacy is a conduit to understanding the concrete force of abstract fields of power by allowing us to identify actually existing systems rather than a priori structures. Specific infrastructures have provided vehicles for a diversity of forces affecting embodied relational life colonialism and imperialism, U.S. racism, modernity, gender binaries, homophobia, chemical toxins, development schemes, neoliberal policies, and national security. Colonialism and imperialism, U.S. racism, modernity, gender binaries, 
homophobia, chemical toxins, development schemes, neoliberal policies, and national security. Infrastructure at the same time offers grounds for intimate publics, a focus of struggles for resources, and material for affective attachment and symbolic meanings. People are thought of as infrastructure when the state uses them for development, or when their everyday efforts enable what failed infrastructure cannot, while failed or bygone infrastructures provide the landscape for much living. Infrastructure involves the very norms that queer and feminist scholarship excavates so ably. It aims for the invisible, taken-for-granted status of the best ideology. When infrastructure works as it should, we often stop seeing it. The material stakes of infrastructure make it an ideological object, while, arguably, the ideological stakes make it material. Infrastructure is also a shortcut to political economy. The great divide between socialist, social welfare, and neoliberal programs concerns public provisioning of such goods as water, sanitation, transportation, and communications. There is power in the sewer. This essay's other argument for studying the infrastructure of intimacy is that these rubrics are analytically compatible with feminist and queer scholarship. What is a virtue of infrastructure for critical scholars is a source of frustration to some infrastructural professionals. That is, its unbounded meaning, rather like the term intimacy itself. Even in trade publications, conceptions of infrastructure are more expansive than the concrete image of a power station suggests. The Proceedings of a Symposium on the Design and Management of Infrastructures works with the broad understanding that, quote, infrastructure is the essential framework in which all societal everyday activities takes place, end quote. At times, the professional writing about infrastructure can be hard to differentiate from critical scholarship. But the infrastructural turn in scholarship activates the openness of infrastructure's meanings even more, emphasizing the capacious meaning of what something requires to function. Quote, a particular kind of instrument, often spatially diffuse or distributed, that is essential to, but remains in the background of, more focal interactions and events, end quote. Or, quote, the vast network that makes possible the movement of goods, people, and information over time and space, end quote. Much of the infrastructural turn can be credited to the feminist scholar Susan Lee Starr and her vision of infrastructure as, quote, an embedded strangeness, a second-order one, that of the forgotten, the background, the frozen in place, end quote. Learning from a surprisingly amenable technical literature and from infrastructures themselves, these studies rely on a baggy notion of infrastructure that combines material and symbolic domains, eschews technological determinism, and recognizes both systematicity and failure. This essay suggests that critical studies of intimacy are animated by an analytical desire for ways to embed social relationships in fields of power that rely on complex, non-reductive understandings of materiality. Infrastructure offers one outlet for these desires. The constructionist attention to infrastructure outlined below illustrates the rich material symbolic assemblages that are contexts, such as restrooms, conduits, such as telephones, and material conditions for intimate relations. By presenting an introduction to thinking about the infrastructure of intimacy, this essay proposes a research agenda for studying conditioning contexts for social relations in ways that can concretize the operations of such abstract systems of power as neoliberalism, imperialism, or homophobia.
The radiator's hissing, still I need your kissing. The vernacular term intimacy has taken on a number of roles in critical scholarship with particular relevance for feminist and queer studies. Intimacy commonly provides a synonym for a concept of proximate, close relations, local, micro-level, private, embodied, involving the psyche. Intimate relations are, quote, relationships that are or give the impression of being physically and or emotionally close, personal, sexually intimate, private, caring, or loving, end quote. In prevalent analysis of modernization, intimacy offers a convenient way to demarcate the familiar distinctions between public, private, and local, global. In these uses, the intimate stands apart from the state and the market, often contrasting the authenticity of local life with external impositions. That is, modern, western, or capitalist forces invade intimate life. These discussions presuppose that intimacy belongs to the local level or the private sphere. By contrast, feminist and queer scholars have used intimacy as an analytical device to counter the understanding of the intimate as a private, local realm until it is penetrated by external forces. This work understands intimacy itself as a domain of power and a construct. In other words, as a primary domain of the microphysics of power in modern societies. Extending the classic feminist insight that intimate relations are already inextricable from and realized through larger relays of power, such analyses demonstrate how larger forces produce private, proximate, and personal domains and distribute resources unequally across differently valued relations, public-private, local-global, personal-political. These trenchant binaries and their gendered associations were carved out by economic, political, and intellectual currents and realized in built forms. Capitalist modernity and its intellectual advocates produced the common-sense view that the private, domestic, and feminine sphere is non-productive and economically irrelevant. Indeed, the separation of public and private spheres constitutes modernity. Quote, The modern device of intimacy, George Tessett writes, unfolded in the domestic space of the family, end quote, in Europe from 1750 to 1850. Thus, as Anne Laura Stoller writes, quote, to study the intimate is not to turn away from structures of dominance, but to relocate their conditions of possibility and relations and forces of production, end quote. Stoller and Lauren Berlant's articulation of this critical take on intimacy has influenced a wide swath of scholarship. By casting intimacy as a public and political mode of relationship, Berlant argues that intimacy has been privatized in 20th century liberal society in ways that valorize normative forms of domestic intimacy, notably white heterosexual nuclear families, while eroding the intimacy of public democratic life. Such views use intimacy as a rubric to illuminate the broad operations of political economy, labor, or governmentality. Therefore, for example, in relation to globalization, quote, the intimate functions not as an opposite to the global, but as its corrective supplement or its undoing, end quote. This reach for intimacy reflects dissatisfaction with inherited terms for thinking about social relations, especially among scholars deconstructing sexuality as a domain of knowledge or identity. Most famously, Michel Foucault argued that the formation of the category of sexuality as a real phenomenon to be measured, known, and felt subjected people to modern social power rather than liberating them. The hope is that the colloquial term intimacy might avoid reproducing pitfalls now associated with concepts like sexuality or gender, such as reifying female identity, 
relying on a heterosexuality slash homosexuality binary, or assuming that true selves lie beyond power, while still allowing scholars to study recognizably erotic and gendered realms, including reflection about their categorization in the same analytical frame. The desire to resist forms of knowledge that perpetuate or rationalize global inequality, such as ideological reifications of family, sexuality, community, motivates the use of intimacy as a rubric. Because it is a flexible, provisional reference that emphasizes linkages across what are understood to be distinct realms, scales, or entities, intimacy is a placeholder. It allows analysts to look at relational life, including the feelings and acts that comprise it, in relation to colonial empire or capitalist modernity, without a fixed analytical definition. I see similar motivations in the new attention to infrastructure in ways that make this banal rubric a resource for the critical examination of intimacy as a field of power. Get a room. Studies of intimacy are critical because they emphasize the exegesis of power, including sensitivity to the power of theories and terms. As such, they have to contend with problematic uncertainties of historicity, materiality, systematicity, and agency raised over the past several decades. The reframing of power away from sovereign states to diffuse networks concerned with bodies and populations that operate through discourse has provided one of the most productive courses through this analytical flux. Much recent analysis of intimacy argues that disciplinary power, governmentality, or biopolitics, chiefly in the form of discourse, use intimacy to regulate bodies and populations in ways that distribute life chances unevenly. The introduction to one journal's special issue on intimacy suggests that the subject offers, quote, a primary nexus of biopolitics and sovereignty that is not only the sphere of individual subjectification, but also a site for ordering populations, end quote. Elizabeth Pavanelli and Berlant show how law, policy, and popular media in liberal Anglo-settler societies distribute resources according to the evaluations of worthy and unworthy forms of intimacy. Given the discursive understanding of power, such studies of intimacy often hover over norms, logics, or taxonomic binaries. That is, how regimes of power categorize intimacy and the affective consequences of those categorizations. As a methodological choice, this focus has the virtue of avoiding an economic determinism that would reduce symbols, ideas, and feelings to capitalist arrangements. It also allows for an object pluralism that is able to attend to an array of entities, so for example animals and things, in a range of relations, non-heterosexual, non-familial. But normative discourse is not the only route by which power realizes its intimate reach. In practice, analyses that excel in excavating discourse, norms, or logics often leave physical structures untouched, leave governmental agents unspecified, and let capital flow in a diffuse hypermobility. Thus, this method may not satisfy analysts of intimacy who focus on capitalism, the state, or matter, or who are as interested in how intimate relations are enacted as in how they are defined in contexts produced by power. Other studies of intimacy highlight political economic qualities. Notable are discussions of the quote-unquote commercialization of intimacy. Quote, the way in which intimacy or intimate relations can be treated, understood, or thought of as if they have entered the market, end quote. Commercial uses of intimate relations confound sedimented distinctions between the public and the private. Intimacy seeps into waged labor, payment seeps into intimate relations, 
This represents a crossing of the separations created in Western modernity between public and private, economy and life, rationality and sentiment. Boris and Parenius define quote-unquote intimate labor as the labor involved in foraging and sustaining interpersonal ties and caring for people's needs. The political-economic materiality of this work resonates with much work on infrastructure, but its materialism centers naturally on labor relations and on the articulation of capital with affective and embodied work that extends patterns of gender, race, and class inequalities, not on asphalt or wires. Melinda Cooper and Catherine Waldby's study of quote-unquote clinical labor suggests that non-unionized intimate labor in the form of independent contractors is emblematic of labor more generally. Across differing methods and theories, the critical uses of intimacy I have outlined share analytical tendencies in accounting for how effectively laden social relations articulate with capitalism and governance. Most strive to avoid a material determinism that reduces social arrangements and symbolic operations to a material base by attempting to describe symbolic and material domains as combined or inseparable. They work to resist narratives presenting a teleological forward march of history, emphasizing an it-could-have-been-otherwise contingency. They recognize a range of intimate relations, non-heterosexual, non-biological, that increasingly includes connections with non-human parties, such as animals and objects. In Economies of Abandonment, a work of social theory about the distribution of provisioning and life chances under neoliberalism, Pavanelli identifies this problem, quote, how to address substance, materiality, and embodiment without treating substance as a singular, stable, independent, and ultimate referent of an immovable and unmoving being against which social and culture forces brace, qualify, quantify, or relate, end quote. These mandates set an ambitious agenda, partially for empirical research and writing concerned with capitalism, materiality, and people. Meeting these varied analytical demands by creating new descriptions of the spaces and conduits for intimacy is more difficult than it might sound. How to describe domains of governance without reifying the state, capitalism minus echoes of a base superstructure model, matter without essentialism, material without determinism, humans without anthropocentrism, these remain more challenging in practice than available theoretical solutions suggest, particularly when the scope reaches beyond the register of discourse. Pavanelli meets the challenge of avoiding essentialist substance while describing bodies, buildings, and inequality by focusing on what is left behind or excreted from discursive regimes, or what she calls carnality. My proposal relies on a different sense of material that is more guided by its empirical associations. This essay proposes infrastructure as a pedestrian vehicle for addressing the ambitious analytical desires of studies of intimacy. Just as the open-ended use of intimacy provides an alternative to the criticized concepts of identity, critical studies of infrastructure, which is itself a commonplace and fluid term, offer a different route to understanding intimacy in critical terms by empirically tracing circuits of power, norms, and agency that are realized in particular modes of relations. The Water Closet A famous site where infrastructure meets gender and sexuality is the bathroom particularly the public restrooms that are the hallmark of modernity. The bathroom, the site for elimination, as well as for changing clothes, freshening one's appearance, or changing diapers, embodies regulatory norms for bodily capacity and corporeal intimacy. 
Dependent on functioning water flows and sewage systems, this modern restroom is a hallmark of civilizational comfort. Conversely, little marks a place as backward more than the absence of operational facilities for elimination using plumbing and sewage. Night soil is not modern. The modern bathroom has been a fulcrum in political controversies. The homosocial public toilet has also offered a venue for men seeking sex with men, transactions known in different national English lexicons as the quote-unquote tea room trade or quote-unquote cottaging, echoing an old association between quote male homosexuality and public conveniences, end quote. The predicate for most public bathroom facilities is quote-unquote urinary segregation, the clear differentiation between male and female. Gendered elimination is hardly a universal human experience, however. Before European modernity, most public sites for elimination were shared across genders, and they remain so in many poor parts of the world and, of course, in private homes. Olga Gershison and Barbara Penner note that, quote, private sex-segregated laboratories were a modern and Western European invention bound up with urbanization, the rise of sanitary reform, the privatization of the bodily functions, and the gendered ideology of separate spheres, end quote. When public latrines were built in Europe and its settler societies, they were only for men until the 19th century. The gender schema for private entities' public facilities involved other differentiations of class and, most famously, of race. The well-known segregation of public facilities in the United States and South Africa involved separate interfaces with water, waste, and other infrastructures in ways that confound a blunt gender binary. When the Pennsylvania Railroad hired black women workers during World War II, it viewed them as interchangeable with male laborers and did not provide sex-specific restrooms for black workers as it did for white workers until it was pressured to do so. The limits of bifurcated gender facilities have been pointed out by second-wave feminists, leading to calls for quote-unquote potty parity for males and females and recently by trans advocates who have called for safe access to public bathrooms whether through the creation of single-user or gender-neutral spaces. As a locus for an institutionalized gender divide and its intersectional expressions, and for the tea-room trade of male-male sex, public bathrooms have been the subject of feminist, transgender, and queer writing. Following Mary Douglas's analysis of dirt and pollution as forceful classificatory schemas, as well as psychoanalytic and semiotic interpretations of bodily waste, Queer scholars have interpreted the meanings of these structures beyond their mere role in managing human waste. Quote, the locus of functional attention to culturally abjected bodily functions always necessarily functions in excess of a logic of mere functionality. End quote. As Lee Edelman writes, bathrooms are set apart by gender, quote, to provide a culturally designated privacy in which to respond to the body's demands, end quote. The public bathroom is a form and effect of psychically laden discourse that reproduces a sexed binary. An experimental architect notes, quote, Public bathrooms are based on a Freudian model where women's bodies are men's bodies that lack a penis, end quote. Or, as Sheila Kavanaugh puts it in her reading of the gender logic of public restrooms queering bathrooms, quote, The modern toilet engineers a truth about the body and its sex, end quote. These authors, among others, read gender-demarcated architecture as a site of representation that is a psychoanalytic symptom of both individual and social concerns, and that produces subjectivity and deviant resistance, an approach characteristic of feminist and queer commentary. 
As the editors of a collected volume on restrooms explain, quote, toilets are best seen as spaces of representation, end quote. The infrastructure for bodily waste represents norms of social membership, for example, according to gender and mobility. In public restrooms, the containment of elimination is linked to the regulation of sex, preventing heterosexual unions, and represents Western society's psychic fear of dissolution. Kavanaugh calls this psychic structuring the quote-unquote hygienic superego. Edelman ponders the men's room urinal and stall structure, wondering why penises are displayed publicly given masculine homophobic imperatives that exclude homosexual contact. Quote, Though clearly conceived as a technological response to the hygienic concerns associated with bodily necessities, he writes, the design of the men's room, simply put, has palpable designs on men. It aspires, that is, to design them, end quote. More than mere settings, bathrooms here are objects of analysis. Both authors' method is to read symptomatically, locating in restrooms' established structure both its cause, the psychic cultural motivations for that design, as well as its effects, its role in forming properly gendered and sex subjects. Kavanaugh's research supplements this psychoanalytic interpretation with interviews to convey how people who violate those norms experience public bathrooms. Public restrooms also produce subjectivity, chiefly through the quote-unquote laws of urinary segregation, or as modes of discipline. In Discipline and Punish, for example, Foucault considers the functioning of the design of France's military academy's toilets, with half doors such that, quote, the supervisor on duty could see the head and legs of the pupil, and also sidewalls sufficiently high that those inside cannot see one another, end quote. Although they discuss the architecture and design of public restrooms, these representational analyses do not investigate the infrastructural level qua infrastructure as I mean it here. Rather, as the historian of the telephone, Claude Fisher, puts it, this kind of thinking reasons from the property of the technologies to their consequences and extrapolates from their form to their causes. But do we know the relationship of the cultural meanings and effects of sex-segregated bathrooms to the infrastructural level itself? For example, plumbing, lighting, partitions, porcelain, regulations, blueprints? This relation of meaning to infrastructure is assumed that is, the effects of separate bathrooms, which reveal them to be sites of power, also explain why and how that segregated form exists. As Starr says, quote, infrastructure is sunk into and inside of other structures, social arrangements, and technologies, end quote. Exploring the design, installation, and operation of the bathroom likely does not contradict these symptomatic readings. Rather, I suggest that they expand and relocate the relays of power. For example, much about the structure of the bathroom was formulated by manufacturers rather than the state. But specific government agencies regulate workplace, public non-work, and domestic facilities in precise and changing detail. Below the federal level, building codes are modeled on international guides like the Uniform Plumbing Code or the International Building Code. These codes specify exactly how many toilets and urinal entities must provide when there must be sex-segregated facilities or particular fixtures to facilitate physical access. Such codes are where sexual, gender, or mobility norms are installed in the architecture of elimination. For the most part, their mandate is not retroactive but applies to new buildings or remodeling. To understand the sexuality of bathrooms, we can turn to Laud Humphrey's controversial microsociological study of male-male sex in public bathrooms in a Midwestern U.S. city, St. Louis, 
in the 1960s. His work was focused on the communicative codes underpinning these illicit criminalized exchanges to show that, if public bathrooms have designs on men, these designs are often foiled by the tea room trade. These are examples of what public health literature calls PSEs, or public sex environments, or in Australia, BEATS. Humphrey's work also gestures to infrastructure in ways that can expand queer and feminist analysis of gendered restrooms and male-male public sex. He explains that the features that informed the collective selection of sites for male-male sex reflected the desire for anonymity. Popular sites allowed easy parking, were major routes for work commuters, and offered some visual protection. Example, a lookout could watch people approach. Park restrooms offered these features. The men involved in masturbation and sex there repurposed these structures toward other ends. Most of these men were not identified as gay, but as quote-unquote normal men engaging in deviant behavior. As Humphreys explains, the infrastructure of the restroom and the micro-practices of these exchanges were shaped by the needs of non-deviant men engaging in deviant behavior, who needed easy entry and exit, anonymity, and an alibi. Quote-unquote normal men who did not partake of more explicit gay venues selected accommodating structures and deployed discrete codes that shielded their deviant behavior from police and acquaintances so that they would remain normal. This queer use of the bathrooms was not built into their design, but reflected a repurposing of structures that exist not as timeless features of the landscape, but as a result of a history that includes ideology and psychic investment in gender as well as racial and economic politics and even geopolitics. Both Humphrey's sociology and the psychoanalytic reading can be seen to offer an, quote, experiential reading, end quote, of infrastructure, which interprets how the, quote, embedding of a range of infrastructures into everyday space shapes our experience of that space and provides a framework through which our encounters with space take on meaning, end quote. Humphrey's informants knew that these Midwestern parks and their restrooms were built by government-funded Works Progress Administration, WPA Labor. As one told him, quote, the real turning point for the tea room trade arrived with the WPA, end quote. Massive New Deal investments aimed simultaneously to install infrastructural projects to develop the nation and to create jobs mainly for men that would support families and hence consumer spending. This construction reflected commitments to extending U.S. citizens' access to public space, to nature, and to indoor plumbing, yet not in race-neutral ways designed to reach Black or Native Americans. The Keynesian program was also intended to stem socialist agitation. If we do not take the infrastructure itself for granted, but instead ask, what makes these bathrooms? We arrive at a significant racial and political economic history that expands the reading of the social meanings of the privy. Indeed, in struggles for gender or racial equality, especially when women and non-whites entered white male work worlds, and in advocacy for inclusion across physical ability or gender presentation, bathrooms have been a fulcrum. White resistance to racial desegregation often galvanized around integrating toilets, including resistance from white organized labor and government agencies. In 1942, a change in plumbing code led a Western Electric Company plant in Maryland to desegregate its public facilities. The white union objected and went on strike. Because the United States was at war and the plant produced equipment for the military, the U.S. Secretary of War took command of the factory to resume production of combat communication technology, overriding labor's demand for segregationist policy. The result was not to genuinely integrate toilets, but to replace de jure segregation in policy with de facto segregation in locker assignments. 
Workers were assigned to blocks of lockers with connected toilets by race, keeping toilets racially separated in practice. In the post-war era, racial segregation of bathrooms involved reconfigurations of governance, de facto practice, and racism in relation to bodily proximity. For example, while both white and black men took part in the St. Louis tea room trade in public restrooms, the St. Louis police also used restrooms as lookouts to surveil black activities in the parks. If sociology has studied toilets as sites of deviance, and queer theory has read them as symptomatic objects for cultural analysis, other approaches consider the infrastructural backdrop to queer sex as a focal point. Notably, Gail S. Rubin's approach to the south of market scene in San Francisco emphasizes such elements as zoning laws and property values. These, she says, more than the effects of HIV-AIDS, eroded the sexual culture based in that locale. In his memorializing account of male-male public sects, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, Samuel R. Delaney evokes the infrastructure of blue cinemas, where blowjobs and handjobs were silhouetted against heterosexual porn films projected on the screen. An eye toward infrastructure, towards the grids and structures of the built environment, transport, communications, regulatory systems, links blowjobs to urban planning and capital accumulation, revealing how official intentions can be betrayed by a plurality of uses, including the way men, trans women, and sex workers repurpose public spaces for sexual transactions. Indeed, we can read the location of much of pre-normalized gay life in the first world in relation to infrastructure across the tracks, at the edge of the town, in manufacturing zones away from residences, or in zones of decaying infrastructure. And the fact that more than 50% of public conveniences in Britain have been closed down since 1995 reveals not just norms in the government reaction to the illicit purposing of cottaging, but also the widespread structural adjustment associated with neoliberalism. Attention to the infrastructure for public sex leads to domains of normative power that are other than, but often compatible with, the symptomatic readings of psychic and cultural meanings. Can you hear me now? The most obvious example of infrastructure's role in intimacy would be information and communication technologies, particularly in digital forms. Voice communication by telephone or internet, email, instant messaging and SMS, teleconferences, and data transmission. If the bathroom is a normative site repurposed for illicit intimacy, these technologies are vehicles that allow for intimate connections across spatial divides. The connection between digital technology and intimacy is apparent in popular culture. Consider the vital roles that cell phones and computer screens and rotary phones before them play in advancing the plots of movies and television shows. The 2013 film Her pushes an unfolding logic of the intimacy of our relations with computers to further limits, showing how a contracted writer of personal letters, mailed in envelopes through an unspecified postal system, develops a relationship with a new operating system who herself evolves an affective erotic agency that extends beyond ownership, embodiment, or, the film suggests, Newtonian physics. In ways analogous to theoretical physics, communicative infrastructures collapse space and time between people in not always welcome ways. As Beyoncé sings in Telephone, her duet with Lady Gaga, quote, I should have left my phone at home because this is a disaster, end quote, although the 2009 song's image of the phone as an implement for talking rather than texting in a dance club was by then an anachronism. Visual or phonic communication over long distances has become indispensable for sociality in most of the world. 
Indeed, cell phones have a greater import in places that lack landlines, as in many parts of the global south. As research on Japan shows, cell phones, SMS, emoticons, and digital stickers are creating new spaces for intimacy. Young Japanese heterosexual married couples who can't afford a private residence deploy digital exchanges for private intimacies. In Asia, as elsewhere, non-heterosexual or normatively gendered people have found digital communication to be a useful vehicle. The place of information and communication technologies in social relations and alternative communities is probably the most studied infrastructure of intimacy, with a literature too vast to review here. However, I want to call attention to what I see as the salient infrastructural features for the rubric of intimacy. The computer, the telephone, and before these, the telegraph, were innovative technologies enabled by new infrastructures. Telecommunications infrastructures have changed since their late 19th century origins, with the breakup of large quasi-monopolies, the move to mobile phones, the rise of texting and social media. Systems that allow communicative interactions across space change the territoriality and temporality of social relations, yet they do not abandon material presence. Indeed, as Nicole Starosielski shows, global communications deeply depend on fiber-optic networks that are far more centralized, physical, and historical than discourses about digital flows suggest. Communication systems involve labor. In the case of Ma Bell, gender and race were critical elements of the rote work of rank-and-file telephone operators. They involved materials located in space. Quote, the cables and routing centers of the Internet have specific coordinates on the Earth's surface, even if users of the network seldom give much thought to where their bits are going, end quote. We need not give them much thought because communication infrastructures have become nearly invisible as wireless, satellite, and oceanic cable systems provide the translocal links for social life. Indeed, infrastructure often aims to be invisible. Ubiquitous computing, Ubicomp, is, quote, designing systems that weave into the fabric of everyday life and disappear in the background of users' attention, end quote. This invisibility makes infrastructure both a material manifestation of ideology, it takes the form of an unexamined background, and a governing force in ways that suit an analysis of power as top-down, sovereign, or external to affected people. Quote, as large, force-amplifying systems that connect people and institutions across large scales of space and time, Paul N. Edwards writes, infrastructures seem like paragons of modernity, understood as a condition of subjection to systems, bureaucracies, hardware, and panoptic power, end quote. A sociopolitical reading of infrastructures emphasizes the way that they, quote, drive and maintain standardization, reflect and embody historical concentrations of power and control, and are instruments through which access is managed, end quote. But most of these studies reject a notion of infrastructure as a systemic manifestation of homogenous penetrating power. The invisible quality of infrastructure can be achieved, quote, only in the context of well-understood practices and only through continual efforts of management and maintenance, end quote. From a prolific engineer, we hear that, quote, things work because they work in a particular configuration, at a particular scale, and in a particular context and culture, end quote. Communication systems illustrate the polyvalent relationship between intimacy and infrastructure. Telephonic or digital infrastructures are complexly layered. Even the symbolic coding of digital media involves layers of infrastructure in the form of networks, facilities, equipment, and fixed investments that facilitate electronic interaction. 
Understanding infrastructure as a network linking various nodes allows us to recognize a plurality of sites where material systems and their failures are entwined with social relations and with a complex interplay of structure and agency. The centrality of distance-crossing communication to personal relationships is by now taken for granted, at least where the technology works. Yet this personal use was not inherent to Alexander Graham Bell's design. The manufactured telephone was not intended for social intercourse, but for business, government, and private emergencies. Telephone companies resisted the use of phones for personal use. AT&T instructional films did not emphasize, quote, telephony intimate intersubjectivity, end quote, but instead encouraged restraint. Ordinary users, especially women, repurposed this technology in ways that altered its meaning and operations and made everyday personal use more central. Before users' appropriation of this new technology, telephone infrastructure met with resistance. When telephone poles were installed across the U.S. landscape, angry residents at first cut them down. This resistance to the physical intrusion eventually dissolved and the poles became a fixed feature in our environment. Telephone poles were then used to lynch black men. In Time and Distance Overcome, Eula Bliss writes, quote, It was only coincidence that they became convenient as gallows, because they were tall and straight with a crossbar, and because they stood in public places, end quote. Peculiar institutions and their legacies deploy infrastructures in ways that combine legal and extra-legal practices, physical properties, tall and straight, and intended and unintended uses. Infrastructure is repurposed towards intimacies we cherish and toward those we don't. The approach to infrastructure I describe here moves in a different direction, both from symptomatic readings that extrapolate cultural and psychic meanings from technological form and from approaches that reduce the distribution of material resources to the discursive distribution of value or normativity. Infrastructure researchers drill down to depths that are both literal and figurative, to fiber optic cables and software programming, sewage and building codes. They also trace outward to connected series of people, discourses, and things. These approaches mix human and non-human agency to various debated degrees and examine structures ranging from physical materiality to front office operations. The late Susan Lee Starr in her influential 1999 article titled The Ethnography of Infrastructure calls her approach a structural inversion that foregrounds not just the effects of information technology on users, but, quote, the truly backstage elements of work practice, end quote, that illuminate how social forms are written into the architectonics of information technology. Her article offers a template for identifying qualities relevant to the social analysis of infrastructure. The way that functional infrastructure, quote, does not have to be reinvented each time or assembled for each task, but invisibly supports those tasks, end quote, star calls transparency. People, of course, learn how to use this infrastructure, and education that is embedded in social membership involves patterns of relationships. Infrastructure is also what Stark calls embedded, that is, quote, sunk into inside of other structures, social arrangements, and technologies, end quote. The design and use of infrastructure is not sui generis, but involves pre-existing conventions and materials, legacy infrastructures, that condition its operation. Indeed, long-distance digital communication is based on telephone technologies and standards. Quote, we are pouring data through channels that were designed to carry human conversation, says one author, but then the telephone system itself encodes voices in digital data 
so that we have data masquerading as voice masquerading as data, end quote. STAR models an enduring approach for studying the complexity of infrastructure in terms of relations, which have, since STAR's writing, been extended to involve even more varied intimacies between humans and non-humans. And she provides a model for understanding how intimacy is enabled or thwarted by infrastructures more generally. Hello, Lamppost. What you knowin'? As I hope the examples of toilets and phones have shown, infrastructure offers a useful category for illuminating how intimate relations are shaped by and shape materializations of power. It offers a vehicle for translating, operationalizing, broader theories of power, system, materiality, space, ideology, and discourse into observations of concrete situations. Quote, Infrastructure is analytically useful, Paul Durish and Genevieve Bell tell us, both because it is embedded into social structures and because it serves as a structuring mechanism in itself, end quote. But what is infrastructure? Infrastructure conjures up quite physical things, pipelines, roads, wiring, cables, military installations, computer equipment, buildings. To be infrastructure, things usually have to be organized into physical networks, think internet servers or sewer systems, but often include immaterial elements, such as wireless signals. They require a lot of capital. The codification of the term infrastructure in the mid-20th century hinged on economics. Specifically, infrastructure migrated from a military term used by NATO to a broader label for the, quote, technical political systems required for growth and modernity, end quote, in post-war debates about funding for international economic development efforts. Yet, despite the nitty-gritty, hard-surfaced connotations of systems of metal and asphalt, the term infrastructure itself is actually a bit fuzzy. Even in the trade, there actually are no fixed definitions of the term. As an article in the Journal of Urban Technology puts it, quote, to use the word define with respect to infrastructure misconstrues the essence of infrastructure, end quote. Engineering, planning, and economic fields emphasize different qualities, and even within those fields, definitions vary. It can be described by systematic, intended functions, or as a certain class of systems. The Oxford Dictionary defines infrastructure as, quote, the basic physical and organizational structures and facilities, for example, buildings, roads, power supplies, needed for the operation of a society or enterprise, end quote. This definition emphasizes physical operations, but the sample sentence offered to illustrate infrastructure points to a wider meaning, quote, the social and economic infrastructure of a country, end quote, which suggests immaterial systems, social and economic, and functions, conversions, storage, distribution, support. The U.S. National Research Council offers a comprehensive definition of infrastructure as, quote, the operating procedures, management practices, and development policies that interact together with societal demand and the physical world, end quote, in order to provide a range of services, a definition that foregrounds social codes, such as policies and procedures, practices, interaction, and provisioning. One interdisciplinary study concludes that the principles for defining infrastructure were basically an author's quote-unquote gut feeling about what matters economically, or a list of characteristics, quote, generally associated with infrastructure, end quote. As with intimacy, this very lack of fixed meaning can serve critical analytical purposes. If not entirely open-ended, the working conceptions of infrastructure see a spectrum of entities at play, determined, if at all, by the particular network at a particular place and time. 
Thomas P. Hughes' framing of quote-unquote large technical systems, like electricity, operates as an expansive working conception of infrastructure. Quote, Among the components in technological systems are physical artifacts such as turbo generators, transformers, and transmission lines in electric, lighting, and power systems. Technological systems also include organizations such as manufacturing firms, utility companies, and investment banks, and they incorporate components usually labeled scientific, such as books, articles, and university teaching and research programs. Legislative artifacts, such as regulatory laws, can also be part of technological systems. Because they are socially constructed and adapted in order to function as systems, natural resources, such as coal mines, also qualify as system artifacts." When we see infrastructure as, quote, life supports that channel water, energy information, people, goods, and wastes to and from the objects supported, end quote, as Michelle Newman does, we can see how they are part of the conditions for kinship and sex and civic life. That they assemble knowledge, regulation, and things enhances their appeal for directions in feminist and queer thought. The rubric of infrastructure draws on unfolding studies of technology, science, and objects, often drawing on actor network theory, understood as the study of ways that heterogeneous components form a network which itself produces its objects, so, for example, truth, nature, humans. A new emphasis on animating objects and technologies in social analysis represents a larger shift from an androcentric horizon in which things or other life forms represent the background to, or objects of, human action to one that grants greater, albeit debated, agency to non-humans. These approaches feel related to the renewed theoretical attention to ontology in new materialist theories, such as new feminist materialism. While beyond the scope of this article, one of the marked outcomes of these directions is greater attention to animals as agents, particularly in animal-human intimacy in queer and feminist studies. Michelle Murphy exemplifies these directions in her definition of infrastructure as, quote, spatial arrangements of relationships that draw humans, things, words, and non-humans into patterned conjunctures, end quote. There is abundant work that animates objects, substances, and things in ways that are linked to infrastructure. Although it does not focus on the term infrastructure, one example is Ariel Ducey's 2010 article, Technologies of Caring Labor, From Objects to Affect. Ducey talks about technologies in a hospital both as literal objects, does the shower work, and as techniques of governance, how are workers expected to manage the broken shower? Her analysis of objects and technologies as, quote, the structures on which sociality and the labor that it produces hangs, end quote, could also provide a working articulation of the infrastructure of intimacy. Similarly, other interpretations of objects and technology can be extended to conceptualizing infrastructure in relation to intimacy. If objects are described as a, quote, embedding environment for the self, end quote, while communications technology is described as, quote, the objects with which and the conditions within which we enact some of the most profound conduct of our lives, dealing with family, friends, and ourselves, end quote, both of these depictions also aptly frame the infrastructure of intimacy. The overlap between infrastructure and these related topics of objects, technology, and things raises the question, what is particular to infrastructure? One argument for studying the infrastructure of intimacy is its systemic, networked quality. This enables a discussion of systems that does not ascribe a priori or deductively applied structures to a mess of materials, but rather identifies systemic patterns that emerge from the assemblage's operations. 
the various entities that comprise an infrastructure, when they function, achieve its systematicity. Infrastructure offers a structuralism that is amenable to post-structuralist and empirical methods. But still, the rubric of infrastructure is a construction that is itself intertwined with histories of the very networks we are considering. The term only became popular through international efforts to create infrastructures to achieve modernized national economies. Infrastructure has traction for contemporary critical studies of intimacy precisely because of this history, because of the way the term has been used in debates about public and private provisioning. For studies that understand intimacy in relation to geopolitics and global capitalism, infrastructure's entwined history with transnational political economy is salient. In this sense, I am using infrastructure in the way that authors like Berlant and Pavanelli use intimacy, as an object in itself and as a rubric to describe the construction of that object. Water under the bridge. Quote, the smell of infrastructure is the smell of the public. End quote. Bruce Robbins. Differentiations between public and private in the political economic sense of those terms as state and commerce are bound up in definitions of infrastructure. The term was coined in relation to railways during the era of French high colonialism. Infrastructure meant the understructure of railways, land, embankments, bridges, as opposed to their superstructures, rails, stations, and any type of overhead structures. The term infrastructure was first used in English in 1927 to refer to such military constructions as tunnels or culverts, then applied to frame civilian infrastructure as national self-defense. In the post-war period, the word was even seen as, quote, NATO jargon, end quote, used to describe investment in rebuilding Western Europe. Science historian William J. Rankin's careful genealogy of the term shows how infrastructure became popularized through the United Nations' attention to development. Quote, the category of infrastructure has its roots in a debate about cost, where the business logic of overhead accounting came to be applied to entire national economies, end quote. Influenced by modernization theory's emphasis on social overhead capital as key to underdeveloped countries' takeoff, UN visions of infrastructure included provisioning education and other social projects. Only later did the term become affixed to large-scale technological projects like dams. This history shows that the rubric of infrastructure was created through colonial and imperial development projects of modernity. As such, infrastructural investment was also a transnational public project. Infrastructure is so closely linked with public provisioning that the discussions of these domains have considerable overlap. Much of what counts as infrastructure is associated with utilities or public goods and with a material manifestation of legitimate sovereignty. To understand the salience of infrastructure, for analyses of intimacy under post-socialist or neoliberal conditions, it is worth articulating these economic dimensions in some detail. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, identifies infrastructure as public facilities, quote, the types of social facilities which are regarded as essential to the maintenance of a tolerable standard of living for residents and workers, educational and healthcare facilities, leisure facilities and open space and the infrastructure associated with the maintenance of public health and welfare, law and order, and public administration, end quote. Quote, unquote, public good is an economic as well as a political concept. It results from the understanding, which clearly varies over time and by regime, that markets do not work well for achieving, quote, tolerable standards of living, end quote, in all areas. 
quote-unquote market failures occur where there is not enough likely profit to motivate capitalist investment in the service because the good is quote-unquote non-excludable. In other words, you cannot prevent people from benefiting and quote-unquote non-rival. People's use does not diminish the good or make it scarcer. Quote, you can't control its distribution via contract and you can't make it scarce enough to merit a price, end quote. When capitalists lack the likelihood of profit because a service is non-rival and non-excludable, then the state is the ideal provider, and ideal states provide those services. Even Adam Smith felt that the state should provide such public goods as roads. Thus, a common conception views infrastructure as a quote-unquote natural monopoly controlled by the state. The long economic boom associated with Fordism, state communism, and Cold War international aid, the glorious 30 years, was characterized by a shared ideal that states should invest in large-scale infrastructure to provision public goods and to spur economic development. An axiom of modernization theory was that infrastructure led to development and should be funded through aid. While the development of the rubric of infrastructure and its prevailing definitions lean public, so arguably toward a kind of commons, Increasingly, econometric logic and neoliberal policies are eroding infrastructure's public aura. In the field of economics, infrastructure's main role is to facilitate economic activity. It considers infrastructure as capital, specifically quote-unquote social overhead capital, or quote-unquote productive capital, that is tallied as a quote-unquote non-financial asset. Those definitions have stakes for the conditions for everyday life as they shape evaluation of national economies and policies for the provisioning of public services. Policymakers think about infrastructure in relation to economic growth, generally meaning support for select businesses rather than a commons or the public's well-being. Infrastructure is calculated as the property of the nation and hence as a sign of its well-being, a reputation that affects its ability to raise funds for further public projects, whether by taxing corporations, rather than offering tax breaks to attract their presence, or by borrowing money at less than usurious rates. Technicalities aside, when queer and feminist studies speak of privatization and neoliberalism, they often mean infrastructure. Studying the infrastructure that houses, lights, heats, sanitizes, or conveys people offers a way to understand the political economy of intimacy. London Bridge is falling down. Infrastructure is a key, if neglected, element in domains referenced in critical studies of intimacy, modernity, globalization, and neoliberalism. As Saski Assassin has shown, global flows of capital have been generated by infrastructures of law, capital, and labor configurations that operate in particular grounded contexts. Edwards calls infrastructure the, quote, connective tissues and the circulatory systems of modernity, Infrastructures simultaneously shape and are shaped by, in other words, co-construct, the condition of modernity, end quote. The modern is unthinkable without its infrastructure. Without dense housing, transportation arteries, electric power, and now digital signals. But if it works, what feels new and modern, the technological sublime, eventually becomes part of the background environment, that barely seen telephone pole. The prefix infra means below which flags the intended purpose of conventional infrastructural projects to end up hidden from the view of most users. Pipes beneath ground, wires behind walls, or satellites orbiting out of sight. As a study of the Parisian underground metro says, quote, they are physically hidden because planners deliberately embed them in other structures, behind walls or underground, but they are socially hidden because they are made to run smoothly 
and fade into the background, to become routine or taken for granted, end quote. Considering the association of infrastructure with modernity through a post-colonial lens brings awareness of installation, operation, and failure, of the multiple resources, efforts, and exclusions that achieve that taken-for-granted background hum. Indeed, infrastructure is not always intended to be invisible. European colonial projects intended their infrastructures to be seen, to inspire awe in the colonized subjects. This intention of invisibility and its realizations in some places for some populations allows us to think about infrastructure in relation to ideology, as metaphor or manifestation. Infrastructures are constructed and operated behind the scenes in order to achieve the status of take-it-for-granted background to activities. In this way, infrastructure exhibits what science and technology fields mean by the term construction, not a fiction that pretends to reality, but a fabrication from material and symbolic means that is real. A component of successfully operating infrastructure is thus ideological, by operating in ways that obscure the labor and politics involved in that functioning. Just as ideology can become more obvious during fraught times or in off-kilter, heterotopic spaces, then so too is consciousness of infrastructure more apparent when not yet absorbed into the background, when it is being installed or displayed as the quote-unquote colonial sublime. Infrastructures do not always run smoothly. That is an achieved status and one with geopolitical specificity associated with the developed world of Japan and the West. As Edwards notes, quote, this notion of infrastructure as an invisible, smooth-functioning background works only in the developed world. In the global south, norms for infrastructure can be considerably different, end quote. Indeed, infrastructure demarcates developed from undeveloped places. For modernization theory, infrastructure was the decolonizing world's key to catching up. According to Rankin, quote, infrastructure became simply a synonym for prerequisite, a way to label all those things lacking in the underdeveloped world, that is, everything separating the state of underdevelopment from that of modernity, end quote. Critical transnational scholarship has analyzed the binary logic and hegemonic demarcations of territory and time. In the categories of developed, undeveloped, modern, traditional, or backward, post-Cold War and post-socialist contexts, Fordism and post-Fordism. Infrastructure is as much a marker of these divides as it is an object of neoliberal cutbacks to state provisioning. Worldwide, we see the decay and failure of public infrastructure. Indeed, the decline of government or public expense on infrastructure is the hallmark of neoliberalism, which is also significantly a post-Cold War, post-Keynesian, and post-socialist context. With the structural adjustment, later neoliberalism, and the end of command economies, States now sponsor monumental infrastructure chiefly in the name of security and business rather than public provisioning. The experience of Latin America is general. Quote, From around 1990, infrastructural investment would no longer be about marking the landscape with monuments to human intervention that might spur sluggish national economies. Infrastructure instead would become a subtler affair, leading states to emphasize their role as scaffolders of human and natural capacities. End quote. Reduced budgets and pro-business sentiment lead governments to invest their resources in public-private partnerships. One source for this money is workers' retirement plans. The shift in first-world retirement programs to relying on stocks and bonds has created, quote, pension fund capitalism, end quote. Enormous pools of capital that can be invested in long-term projects like new infrastructural projects. Thus, changes to provisioning for the elderly, including the source of payment for the intimate labor of their care, are intertwined with increasing reliance on private funding for infrastructure. 
Just as the installation of infrastructure has never been equitable, the decay of public infrastructure is not a homogenous decay. The processes summarized as neoliberalism have also been described more specifically as the quote-unquote unbundling of infrastructure. Quote, standardized and bundled infrastructure is broken apart or segmented technically, organizationally, and institutionally into competitive and non-competitive elements to support infrastructural consumerism, end quote. The result is the quote-unquote splintered city, or globally, an international archipelago of economically privileged zones, in which unbundled resources are decentralized in an uneven way that prioritizes select business sectors and their elite workers. The quote-unquote splintering or unbundling of public infrastructural goods mostly recreates existing inequalities between wealthier and poorer countries and cities. The distribution of plumbing, transportation, communications, and public space all affects sociality, producing the consequential material dimensions of inequality, where you can go, how you can reach people, where you can have sex, how you can wash up. To invoke the examples of this essay, the widespread closing of public restrooms and public payphones in the global north alters the landscape for intimate connections. Thus, while the rubric of infrastructure offers a material manifestation of class, race, and regional inequalities, it also explains how they are created. Infrastructural inequality is a way to specify neoliberalism in an analysis of the structuring context for intimate relations. Failed infrastructure is the setting for many lives. Quote, while some infrastructural projects may have eventually become part of the landscape, write Craig Hetherington and Jeremy M. Campbell, at least as often they remain a monument of bad deals, uninterested lenders, or questionable governance in the years after they initially appear, end quote. But the ruins of infrastructure that has failed as a systemic network is also a resource of everyday life. Gaston Argordillo provides an evocative portrait of the social life of the ruins created by Argentina's economic and political history. As severe cutbacks shuttered railway lines, it scattered the inhabitants of settlements around stations. Then people turned the abandoned train stations into dwellings, quote, doing what humans have done with rubble for millennia, turning it into something useful, end quote, and at times into a new commons. Conclusion. Hit the road, Jack. Quote, all infrastructure is knowledge, end quote. Margot P.C. Vinen. Studies of infrastructure, along with studies of architecture, objects, space, and cities, have created ways to think about, quote, the queerness of matter and things, end quote, how they are not what humans assume them to be. Infrastructure provides a way to identify conditions, channels, and constraints as, quote, unquote, real, without reproducing problematic modes of describing the real, for example, deterministic, reductive, teleological, or Eurocentric. For those seeking to understand the intimate operations of power in material, political, economic, and systematic terms, the study of infrastructure offers an object and a rubric. Infrastructure is a system or assemblage that includes physical and immaterial elements, usually intended to operate in the background, and is intended to facilitate living and activity. In some cases, for the well-being of a population, so public good, social demand. In others, the profitable activity of businesses. What this framing makes clear is that the interest in infrastructure applies not only to technology or to literal immaterial objects. It also includes a sense of systems, management, and energy, as well as planning and design. Hence, discourse, symbols, and arguably even affect.
In many situations, these systems provide the structures on which sociality hangs. They constrain and channel, but do not determine, allowing unintended consequences. Bathroom sex. Alongside normative visions. Gendered bathrooms. These approaches make the structuralism of infrastructure safe for post-structuralists. Infrastructure is a systematic assemblage of objects, codes, and procedures that, whether it fails or succeeds, is often an embedding environment for intimate life. Critical studies of infrastructure take material substances seriously, not to reduce social life down to a more real substrate, but rather to perceive it as a way to open up received categories. They frame infrastructure as a constructed, real, techno-material symbolic assemblage that at least in intention underpins, enables, and conditions the context for more visible enactments, some intended by explicit norms and some more or less transgressive appropriations. Infrastructure offers a way to describe a context of governed, material systems, artificial light, parking, walled spaces, security systems, sanitation, that reveals capital flows and property regimes. As one writer says, quote, who pays and who does not, who benefits and who does not, and where roads go and where they do not, all create changing surfaces of inequality, end quote. Curiosity about infrastructure leads to information about the concrete allocation of resources in relation to collectivities or commerce. Who shoulders the obligations entailed by provisioning infrastructures? Who has ownership and control? Who is excluded? Feminist and queer frameworks bring attention to the who of these questions, particularly in relation to heteronormative, gendered, or racist criteria. Infrastructure relocates questions from the discursive operations of biopolitical logic to the institutional structures that provision needs themselves, as well as to the relation of those systems to public collectivities or private capitalist markets. After all, neoliberalism centers on the erosion of public support for and privatization of collective forms of provisioning. But just as the critical use of intimacy counters the common sense understanding of public and private, the emerging use of infrastructure eschews a technological determinism or materialist naturalism that talk of railway gauges might suggest. All reasons for intimacy's relationship to infrastructure. It's complicated. Today, your readers were Jesse Beyer and Dr. Sheena Wilson. This podcast is brought to you by Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues. Led by Dr. Sheena Wilson, Just Powers is organized around the idea that a power shift, both literally in terms of energy transition and figuratively in terms of social justice, is necessary to reinvent more livable futures for all. This series of the Just Powers podcast was produced by Jesse Beyer, with sound recording, editing, and mixing by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound.